and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 29th, 2024. Uh, I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Um, as usual, on Mondays, there's not a lot of local content, and um, so I'll back up into Saturday and Sunday's um, editions to find that local content. The front will do a half an hour of Globe Gazette and a half an hour of Fort Dodge. The front page of the Globe Gazette this morning has a photo of President Biden. The headline is, Biden, colon, U.S. shall respond to fatal drone strike. And because that is a national and ever-changing story, I'm going to focus on the local story on the front page. Bill would ease funding rules for pregnancy centers. State fails to find nonprofit to serve as administrator. This is from Tom Barton of the Globe Gazette. Iowans spoke out this week against legislation advanced by Iowa House Republican lawmakers that would make it easier for the state to funnel $2 million to pregnancy crisis centers that promote childbirth and discourage abortion. The state has failed to find an Iowa nonprofit to oversee and administrate a network of crisis pregnancy centers, and maintain a record of the services provided to Iowans. Lawmakers in 2022 created the More Options for Maternal Support, or MOMS, program last year, and last year approved $2 million for the stalled program. The state has failed twice to find a third-party administrator with at least three years of experience managing a statewide network of providers of pregnancy support services. Abortion rights advocates oppose state funding for the Pregnancy Resource Center, saying they mislead women about their options and misrepresent themselves as legitimate medical providers. The centers, which are usually religious-affiliated organizations that encourage childbirth or adoption and discourage abortion, are not fully licensed medical facilities. They typically offer ultrasounds, counseling, diapers, and other baby items without cost. An Iowa House subcommittee earlier this week advanced House File 2057 that would allow the Department of Health and Human Services to administer the program directly. The state could still opt to contract with an administrator, but the bill removes the requirement it, that it have three years of experience managing a similar program. Subcommittee members approved the bill two to one with Representative Heather Matson, Democrat of Ankeny, voting against it. Quote, I do not think that it is a good idea to continue spending taxpayer dollars on programs that, first of all, are not moving forward because we cannot find an administrator that's qualified, but also does not meet the needs in a genuine, completely honest way that every single Iowan deserves, she said. Matson added that it is clear the program exists to exclude groups like Planned Parenthood that provide a range of reproductive health care, including abortion. In 2017, Republican lawmakers chose to withdraw from a federally funded family planning program in favor of a state-run version that barred Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers. The year after it launched, the state's family planning program saw an 85% drop in use of services, which included those that provided birth control and information on how to prevent pregnancy. Representatives Michael Burden, 
Bergen, rather, Republican of Dorchester, and Tom Janieri, Republican of Lamars, voted to advance the bill to the full House Health and Human Services Committee. Quote, I'm interested in moving this bill forward to increase the discussion among a broader group of our Health and Human Services Committee, Bergen said. Tom Chapman, with the Iowa Catholic Conference, said the bill provides needed adjustments to the original law to allow the stalled MOMS program to move forward with the state taking on the role of program administrator. Quote, HHS, as you know, over the past couple of years, has been performing their due diligence with groups that they didn't think were up to the job, and we support them in that, Chapman said. So we think this adjustment will help it be an Iowa-based program, unquote. He said, quote, pregnant women deserve more access to meaningful assistance and support when she needs it. Opponents said the bill would loosen accountability requirements for the state and third-party contractors administering the program and could result in, quote, illegitimate organizations being eligible to receive millions of taxpayer dollars. Representatives for the Family Planning Council of Iowa and Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa said the bill also reduces transparency for the public by removing the requirement for program administrator and subcontractor criteria to be published on the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services website. Quote, my concern here is that we, when we are unable to find a suitable administrator for the program, I don't believe that answer is making it easier to become the administrator, said Maisie Stilwell, Public Affairs Director for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa. She said that to lawmakers. Lawmakers voted to advance the bill after hearing the personal stories of Iowans who said they had harmful experiences with anti-abortion centers including using deceptive tactics and religious guilt to pressure them into not having an abortion and providing inaccurate medical advice. Micah Chase of Cedar Rapids said 14 years ago at the age of 19, they went to a crisis pregnancy center that counsels against abortion. Chase said the option of a free pregnancy test and counseling lured me in, quote unquote. He continued, I faced moral judgments, shaming for uncertainties about the father, guilt-tripping, and even attempted proselytization. Chase told lawmakers, quote, Far from receiving factual reproductive health care, I encountered misinformation and lies, leaving that place self-proclaimed as a non-judgmental safe space. It left me embarrassed, unquote. Our next story is from the front page of the Mason City Globe Gazette. It shows a photo of Perry High School, and the headline is School Safety Funds Unspent. And this is from Ryan R. Foley of the Gazette. The June 2022 announcement was addressed to parents horrified by the massacre at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Iowa would spend $75 million in federal pandemic relief funds to improve school building security citing an urgent need to act after Uvalde and shootings outside a high school and a church in Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds said the state would award up to $50,000 each to $1,500 schools, to 1,500 schools, to fix vulnerabilities. Like many other Republicans, she rebuffed calls for stricter gun control while embracing efforts to, quote, harden schools. 
More than 19 months and two deadly Iowa school shootings later, the money only recently started to trickle out, with the vast majority still unspent. This was partly because local officials struggled to meet state and federal requirements to complete their applications, according to records reviewed by the Associated Press. Contractors helping run the program, meanwhile, have received millions of dollars. The AP found that most schools statewide have yet to receive funding, including those in Perry, a city of 8,000 people, where January 4 school shooting left two dead and several injured. A state agency last week sent a representative to help Perry district officials finish their application for a $150,000 grant through Reynolds' program. The district had started the process more than a year ago, but did not complete the paperwork. Quote, after the tragedy in Perry, we are continuing to look for opportunities to make the process more efficient and effective, said Allie Bright, who is spokesperson for the Iowa Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, which oversees the program. Colin Crompton, spokesperson for the governor, noted that until a district submits an application, the state cannot take any action. Perry's $150,000 is among $20.6 million the state has awarded for upgrades at hundreds of school buildings across Iowa, but payments for completed work have been far less to date. Wright said Friday that as of January 19, the program had paid $950,000 to 18 school districts for improvements at 43 buildings, most of those buildings small and rural. The district in Gilbert received the most, 194000 which went toward surveillance cameras, new entry systems, and door controls. Winfield Mount Union Community School District, which recently announced it will cut back to a four-day school week in the next academic year, added cameras and panic buttons with its $100,000. Other eligible expenses include metal detectors, locks, alarms, and notification systems, security lighting, reinforced doors and windows, barriers, and fencing. Perry officials expressed interest in the grant in 2022 and completed assessments on buildings as required a year ago. Superintendent Clark Wicks did not return messages seeking comment on why the application was not finished before the Perry High School shooting. It is unknown whether additional security could have prevented 17-year-old Dylan Butler from opening fire in the cafeteria before classes began. Investigators haven't revealed how Butler obtained the shotgun and handgun he used. Perry's superintendent has credited an assistant principal with activating an emergency alert that resulted with a quick response by police who found Butler dead. Perry elementary and middle school students who returned to school this week saw tighter security, including uniformed officers and limited entry points. Some parents have called for additional measures, such as metal detectors, and district officials are considering how to spend the grant money. Similar concerns were raised after the January 2023 shooting at Starts Right Here, which is a Des Moines alternative school for at-risk youth. Preston Walls was sentenced last week to 65 years in prison for killing fellow students 18-year-old Gianni Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr. Relatives of Dameron and Carr are suing the school, alleging inadequate security. That school 
like others affiliated with the Des Moines District, which is the state's largest, has not received any grant funding. Bright said, Starts Right Here is not eligible for the program because it's not accredited, but that her agency is working with the school to apply for a different federal security grant. Des Moines School spokesperson Phil Rader Roter, said the district needs to update a purchasing policy to meet federal requirements to receive the roughly $3 million that it requested. The school board is expected to do that in February. Iowa authorities have reported a surge in school threats since the Perry shooting, which killed sixth grader Amir Jolliffe and Principal Dan Markberger and injured, injured several others. Threats in West Des Moines, Davenport, and Lenox led to criminal charges, and another briefly shut down the St. Ansgar district. Thirteen districts were targeted last week by swatting calls, in which someone makes a prank call to emergency services to prompt a response at a particular address. Against a drumbeat of threats and shootings, security funding is popular with lawmakers and parents, even as researchers debate whether the measures reduce gun violence. Iowa's 327 districts and 183 non-public and independent schools still have until October 1 to apply, and most have started that process, Bright said. Once approved, they have through 2024 to designate money for projects and 2025 to get work completed and seek reimbursement. The maximum per building is $50,000 regardless of enrollment. The money from the money is coming from Iowa's share of the American Rescue Plan Act, signed by President Joe Biden nearly three years ago, which was designed to help states recover from the coronavirus pandemic. That funding source is appropriate, Iowa officials say, because violent crime and school safety concerns increased during the pandemic. Reynolds said she did not believe any law could have prevented the Perry shooting. Spokesperson Colin Crompton said Reynolds is proud of the state's work to improve improve rather school safety. He noted that Iowa has purchased 1,200 emergency radios for schools, started a tip line where threats can be anonymously reported, and provided thousands with active shooter training. Several states have similar school safety programs, but few use American Rescue Plan Act funding. Two that have, Ohio and New Hampshire, awarded grants in 2022. Consultants and vendors have received most of Iowa's spending so far, including $5.2 million to Tetra Tech, an engineering business that conducted 1,260 building assessments to identify weaknesses that projects would fix. The state has paid $1.6 million to A.G. Witt, a company helping run the program with Iowa's Homeland Security Department. The agency said it was too small to handle the workload. It's a federal grant, so of course there's obviously a lot of little headaches that go with it, said Department Director John Benson to applicants last year. Some assessments emailed by Tetra Tech were lost in the spam folders of school administrators or faced several weeks or months of delays getting the state's review and approval. A state official apologized to school officials during a meeting last year for that backlog. Another requirement is slowing down projects. Physical changes to schools must be approved for compliance with Iowa's fire code. That is taking three months or longer for buildings inspected by the state fire marshal's office 
which was recently moved to a new department. One student who fled jazz band rehearsal when gunshots rang out at Perry said she will feel safe going back when high school resumes next week. The threat to our school was gone the day of the shooting, she said. Now I'm going back to Saturday's Globe Gazette, um, always hunting for local news for you. Mason City man gets federal prison term after threatening to kill woman. A North Iowa man who pointed a shotgun at a person and threatened to kill them was sentenced Wednesday to 10 years in federal prison. Joseph Fitzgerald, age 64, of Mason City, received the prison term after a September 11, 2023, guilty plea to one count of possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and domestic misdemeanor and domestic misdemeanant, I've never seen that word before, according to a press release. Court documents state that on November 23, 2022, Fitzgerald pointed a shotgun at a disabled person he resided with and threatened to kill them. When officers arrived on scene after a 911 call, Fitzgerald initially refused to let officers enter the home. Fitzgerald has a lengthy criminal history, including convictions for domestic violence, illegal drugs, and burglary. He's also had eight driving while intoxicated convictions and 13 assault convictions. Fitzgerald was sentenced in Sioux City by United States District Court Chief Judge Leonard T. Strand. He must also serve a three-year term of supervised release after the prison term. There is no parole in the federal system. On the front page of Saturday's Globe Gazette is a large photo of uh, uh, an abandoned um, campsite where a person had resided in Mason City. And the headline is, A Snapshot of Homelessness. Agencies and volunteers use annual count to find where help is needed. This is from Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. Each January and July, local service agencies uh, make their way out into the area to take a point-in-time census of people experiencing homelessness. In North Iowa, census nights are coordinated by Friends of the Family, which is a housing and advocacy agency. In conjunction with law enforcement, public health officials, and other agency staff, volunteers set out in the evening and spend hours traversing streets, parks, and parking lots in search of people who may be living unsheltered or at serious risk for homelessness. The census is done at the end of the month. Residents who rely on limited sources of income, such as Social Security, disability, or other monthly disbursements, and do not have permanent housing, may find themselves unsheltered by the end of the month. Volunteers are out from early evening into the early morning. On Wednesday, 53 staff, volunteers, and community partners headed out in 20 counties, including the cities of Mason City, Waterloo, and Waverly, to locate people and determine their housing status, if possible. In total, 24 people experiencing homelessness were contacted and offered services and shelter. The National Alliance to End Homelessness reports that in 2022, 2,419 Iowans, or 7.6 per 10,000 Iowa residents, were experiencing homelessness. Quote, There's no way to tell someone's housing status just by looking at them, 
said Caitlin Kupka, Service Access Manager at FOF. There are two types of homelessness, she said, sheltered and unsheltered. Unsheltered means they live in a place that is not designed for human habitation, like a park, a vehicle, or an abandoned building. Our focus is to meet everyone, but especially to get anyone unsheltered into shelter if they want it. The Alliance's State of Homelessness 2023 edition is based on twice-yearly point-in-time censuses. Done in July and January, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development census is required if communities and agencies wish to access funding for programs that address homelessness. Kupka said that, especially in Mason City, many people experiencing homelessness have high barriers to shelter access, including mental health issues, drug abuse, or a combination of the two. Nicole Jacobs serves as an outreach and diversion specialist and spends plenty of time getting to know her clients. Jacobs spends one night each month on outreach assignments, bringing needed items and checking on anyone experiencing homelessness or at risk for it. The point-in-time census is an extension of the regular outreach I do, Jacobs said. The census is how we make reports to our funders about the needs in the community. The January 24 census was conducted between 6 p.m. and midnight. Divided up two or three census takers to a car, they set out to locations where unhoused people have been contacted in the past. In total, 24 people were contacted who were currently experiencing homelessness and many others were offered resources specific to their region. Of the 24 people identified, 19 were in Cerro Gordo County, three in Bremer, and one each in Franklin, Howard, and Alamakee counties. In Mason City, Jacobs met a man named Mike riding his bicycle and pulling a trailer down the street. Mike is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, making him eligible for immediate shelter in a host of programs through the Veterans Administration. Northern Lights Alliance of Homeless Shelters is ready to receive people who want to take the necessary steps to gain housing in Mason City. During the cold winter months, NLAHS is a low-barrier shelter, but year-round, staff and volunteers are eager to work with people marking, making rather positive changes. Jesse Germond-Son, NLAHS Executive Director, spoke briefly to the census-takers during the pre-shift kickoff. We have beds available. We're ready and willing to take on anyone who wants shelter tonight. Even if they say they've been to NLAHS and can't come back, bring them by. Sometimes people misunderstand the rules and think they are not eligible for our services. The point-in-time census is a snapshot in time. It's not a complete count of those experiencing or at risk for homelessness, but it does give an indication to program directors about the needs in the area. In the January 2023 census, 30 individuals in need of housing were identified. According to the Alliance to End Homelessness, quote, the nation's progress on veteran homelessness has been particularly robust. The size of the group was cut in half over a decade-long period, 2010 to 2020, decreasing by 50%. Similar attention and resources could be extended to other subgroups in an effort to attain similar success, unquote. 
and also from the front page of Saturday's Globe Gazette, Surf to Celebrate 65th Winter Dance Party. The Chiffon's Killer V is part of lineup that celebrates storied history of the venue. And there's a photo of a gentleman from the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels performing at the Winter Dance Party in Clear Lake. Clear Lake's historic surf ballroom and museum will host the 65th iteration of its Winter Dance Party celebration next weekend with a jam-packed lineup of performances from musicians all around the globe. The annual event plays tribute, or pays tribute rather, to the original Winter Dance Party. The Midwestern tour came to a tragic end for rock and roll pioneers Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, who were killed in a plane crash after their February 2, 1959 performance, along with local pilot Roger Peterson. Chris Montez, the Chiffons, Dodie Stevens, and the Killer V's will all take the stage Thursday, February 1, to open the event. The Chiffons, with their trademark tight harmonies, high-stepping confidence, and songs like One Fine Day, and Sweet Talkin' Guy are still staples of oldies radios today. The Killer V's, known in the music business as the Rhythm Section to the Stars, features brothers Jeff and Tommy V, who've been playing drums and doghouse bass, respectively, for almost 40 years, on records for Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Paul McCartney, Ronnie Wood, Brian Setzer, Chuck Berry, Bill, Medley, and their father, Bobby V. Friday Night's Entertainment will feature Rocky and the Rollers with special guests Lala Brooks, who is the voice of the Crystals, and Vito Picone in the Elegance. Richie Lee and the Fabulous Fifties will round out the evening. Saturday will open with the Holy Rocka Rollas, who became instant winter dance party favorites several years ago when they thrilled a winter dance party luncheon, the surf's statement said. The high-energy trio performs classics from the 1950s and 60s and have become a main stage favorite at the annual event. Saturday's lineup will include Albert Lee's 80th Birthday Jam, featuring special guests from around the globe, including Lee. Lee, who grew up in London, has been active in the music industry since 1959, recording and performing with the likes of the Crickets, that's Holly's former backing band, the Everly Brothers, Eric Clapton, Willie Nelson, and Emmylou Harris. Albert has become synonymous with the Surf Ballroom's Winter Dance Party, said Shane Cooney, Winter Dance Party executive producer. This year, we received so many inquiries from his contemporaries wanting to come to Clear Lake to help celebrate Albert's birthday while making a pilgrimage to share their music from the Surf Ballroom stage. If Eric Clapton says that Albert Lee is the greatest guitar player in the world, I certainly believe him, says Jeff Nichols, president of the Surf Ballroom and Museum's Board of Directors. Albert Lee is an incredible ambassador for the surf. He's always been a huge fan of Buddy's and a good friend to us here. And he's pretty excited about it, too, Nichols added. The Letterman, known for their 1961 hit, The Way You Look Tonight, will also perform Saturday, followed lastly by Slim Jim Phantom, whose all-star finale at the show's conclusion will combine the stars of the evening with additional special guests to blend the birthday celebration with a refocus upon the three stars that brought them all together. Joining the others will be additional guests, Glenn Matlock, Gilby Clark, Jenny V, 
Austin Alsop, and Chris Montez. The three-day pass, good for all winter dance party activities held at the surf, will be 135 bucks, and it's valid for the evenings of Thursday, February 1 through Saturday, February 3. Individual night, general admission, and general admission tickets are also available for purchase. All tickets are non-refundable, and the entertainment lineup is subject to change. You can purchase them online at winterdanceparty.surfballroom.com, or you can call their box office, and that number is 641-357-6151. Nichols said, He's always looking forward to welcome the world, not only the surf ballroom, but to Clear Lake and the entirety of North Iowa. People love and adore this area. In the world of chaos that we're in, for people to come from overseas and big urban areas here to the hinterland, to the surf, and to the place that time forgot, to celebrate the origins and early days of rock and roll. And now we'll turn to the opinion page. This is from uh, Saturday's paper. The other Sunday and Monday, neither of those had opinions. And we will start with letters to the editor. Our first letter comes from Tracy Smith of Clear Lake. And Tracy writes, 60 years ago, I was receiving an excellent education in California using Iowa material, widely considered the gold standard. But that was then. Tomorrow, my seventh grade grandson and his bestie will be ensconced on the couch downloading, telling me how their days went. First period, dot, dot, dot. They don't embrace this with joy, but indulge me, because it's the most interesting part of my day. It really is. The boys are wildly divergent in how their autism expresses, but equally brilliant and bored. This is not on the teachers, and some of whom are friends, and all held in my high esteem. Our educators and their teams are cultivating Iowa's most valuable resource, well-educated, good citizens. I delight in watching these kids move through autism to autonomy, but our system is failing them, throttling resources, and our governor wants to cut back even more. What is she thinking? Our $2 billion surplus is better spent cutting the taxes on the rich and spending less on AEA, as bored as they are, they're not excited about turning 14 so they can take online classes at NIAC, but so they can go to work at McDonald's making $15 an hour. God bless those workers, but they're, they're worth every penny, but this is not the aspiration we want. We need more paras, not fewer. The kids nailed negative numbers weeks ago. They need to move on, though I understand the rest need to catch up. Can it, we at least let them use their phones after they've completed their work? They'll work more expeditiously if Bill Nye fills the time until the bell rings, rather than doing nothing. And that was from Tracy Smith of Clear Lake. Our next letter to the editor comes from Darshini Jayawardena, who is a board member of the Central Rivers AEA. I am writing to express my concerns about Iowa House Study Bill 542, a piece of legislation designed to gut Iowa's area education agency system. If passed, this bill will have grave implications for the educational landscape in our state, especially in our rural areas. One of the more troubling aspects of House Study Bill 542 
is its reliance on using NAEP, that's National Assessment of Educational Progress Results, to judge the performance of AEAs. While standardized testing has its place in education, using NAEP as the sole measure of AEA effectiveness is inaccurate since it tests a random selection of students in the state for a one-shot look at progress. Instead, we should be looking at a child's progress over time through a variety of assessments and individualized education plan progress. Did you know that the sample size for this assessment is approximately 266 students out of the 75,945 special education students across the state? This is a very narrow look at what a student is doing at a specific point in time, not what many students are doing over time. We need to do better, but isolating one measure without a comprehensive understanding of the variables feels inaccurate when the very services that kids and families depend on every day are at stake. If you have a child who has benefited from the AEA system, please write to your legislators to let them know that you value the work the AEA has done and continues to do today. You can find your legislators at this link, and it's legis.iowa.gov slash legislators. Please help the AEAs continue to serve every student in the state. And that letter was from Darshini Jayawardena, who is a board member of the Central Rivers AEA. And then our next piece on the opinion page from Saturday's Globe Gazette comes from Steve Corbin, an emeritus professor of marketing at the University of Northern Iowa. And he writes, As an every three-week op-ed contributor to newspapers in 39 states, I read a lot of various and sundry topics, seeking an opportunity to start crafting a research-based message that might be of interest to readers. A while back, I read that 2023 marked the anniversary, the 50th anniversary, that is, of the Endangered Species Act. Next, a friend referred me to read an article published 10 years ago in 2013 titled, There Ought to Be a Law Against an Incompetent Congress. After reflecting on these two topics, endangered species and an incompetent Congress, a little humor entered the noggin. Research ensued and a serious column came to fruition. Let me explain. The ESA has saved 99% of our 2,300 endangered wildlife species in their habitats. An example would be the bald eagle, peregrine falcon, gray wolf, etc. The last time Congress reauthorized ESA funding was 1992. But reauthorization would require a competent Congress to take action. As per William Shakespeare's Hamlet, quote, I, there's the rub. Despite rising polarization in Congress, Researchers for the Center for Effective Lawmaking found, in longitudinal studies, legislative effectiveness is heightened when bipartisanship exists. Historians reveal we've had many competent congressional delegates touted for their bipartisanship, including Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, Robert La Follette, Robert Taft, Ted Kennedy, Margaret Chase Smith, Nancy Kassebaum, William Proxmire, Henry Cabot Lodge, Sam Rayburn, and saving the best for last, John McCain and Tip O'Neill. Truly bipartisan congressional delegates are becoming extinct. It's time for citizens to petition government to enact the 
Endangered Competent Congressional Act of 2024. But we'd need a competent House, Senate, and President to take action, and we've not witnessed such a breed in decades. A June 2013 Gallup survey found that only 10% of their respondents felt satisfied with Congress's performance. How is Congress performing 10 years later? During the September 1 through 23, 2023 time period, Gallup found only 2% of Americans had trust and confidence in Congress. 2%. How bad is Congress? Here are some December 2023 headlines that sum it up. 1. America and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad Congress from Fox News. 2. Worst Congress ever from the Fiscal Times. 3. Farewell to one of the dumbest years in congressional history from Politico. 4. Worst period, Congress period ever, period, from the Washington Post. 5. Capitol Hill Stunner, 2023 led to fewest laws in decades. That's from Axios. 6. A look back at how awful politics was in 2023, from the Wall Street Journal. 7. This horrible Congress is even worse than you thought, from the New Republic. Ten years ago, Ms. Diamond noted, the average salary for most members of Congress was $174,000 per year. Plus, each delegate received over $1.3 million per year as an allowance. She said, now let's multiply that by the 535 members of lackluster, partisan, paralyzed Congress, and you get a grand total that tops $818 million. So what do you think? You think we're getting our almost billion dollars worth of leadership? Yeah, me neither. Today, congressional salaries and allowances amount to $975,540,000. That's from the Congressional Research Service from September of 2023. The average American works 240 days a year. The House was scheduled to meet for 117 days in 2023, while senators worked 154 days. To regain trust and confidence in our delegates to D.C., plus force them to work together on behalf of you and me, their constituents, hey, that's a novel idea, and create a more effective Congress, re-electing bipartisan congressional delegates and de-hiring the bottom of the barrel is in order. Check out the nonpartisan Lugar Center, uh, Lugar Center-McCourt School Bipartisan Index. Bipartisanship scores for members of the Senate and House are listed in rank as well as alphabetical order. Reflect on the ranking of your two senators and House representatives, plus the lowest-ranking legislators in both chambers. Not surprisingly, congressional delegates in the top tier of both chambers' bipartisanship rating rankings are about equally divided between Democrats and Republicans. Names of the least bipartisan will be quite familiar, extremists, rabble-rousers, and whiners to a fault. Before the November 5 election, let's purposely campaign to get rid of 20% of the bottom feeder and less cooperating members of Congress, regardless of their party affiliation. They've proven that they can't or won't work across the aisle. Party before people and, and after me you come first are their mantras. If we cleaned the deck of congressional bottom feeders, politicians and party leaders would quickly get the message. Bipartisanship would ensue to restore an effective and productive legislative body. 
Are you with me or against me in having a more functional and productive Congress? You get to decide on November 5. And that is from Steve Corbin, an emeritus professor of marketing at the University of Northern Iowa. And here's a reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. Um, all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people who have print disabilities. And now I'll turn over to the Fort Dodge Messenger, front page, January 29, three dead after Sunday night shooting. The Webster County Sheriff's Office is investigating a Sunday night shooting that left three dead. According to a release from Sheriff Luke Fleener, a shooting at 2101 140th Street in rural Webster County was reported at 7.40 p.m. A juvenile caller told dispatchers that two people had been shot and the suspect fled on foot. WCSO deputies arrived within minutes and located two female gunshot victims in the garage of the area, according to Fleener. Deputies attempted life-saving medical procedures on both victims until paramedics arrived, but both victims were pronounced dead at the scene. Deputies and officers with the Fort Dodge Police Department searched the immediate area and located a male who appeared to have died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Two female victims have been identified as Molly R. Barlow, age 39, and Phyllis J. Versteeg, age 63. The deceased male has been identified as Duran M. Barlow, age 41. The shooting remains under investigation by the WCSO. There is no threat to the public, according to Fleener. Next story from the Fort Dodge Messenger. Webster County man shocked by $500,000 lottery win. Dateline Badger. A Webster County man who won a $500,000 lottery prize said his celebration at a local supermarket drew attention. Everybody in the store looked at me and I hollered, I just won a half million dollars, Douglas Langenwalter said. I signed the ticket right away and we got the heck out of there. Langenwalter, age 58 of Badger, won the sixth top prize in the Iowa Lottery's $500,000 cash scratch game. He purchased his winning ticket at the fairway on First Avenue South. After buying a ticket, he scratched off the QR code and asked the employee to check the ticket on the store's lottery terminal. She came back with a winner claim form and told him he needed to drive to Clive to claim his prize at lottery headquarters. My wife has the lottery app on her phone, so she scanned it and it said $500,000, Langenwalter said. She thought it was an error, so she scanned it again. Neither one of us, until we got down here and had the check in hand, believed it. Amid the excitement of his huge win, Langenwalter said he had a difficult time sleeping that night. Not a wink up all night long, he said. I was just excited but yet scared because I didn't know if it was really true. But after claiming his prize Thursday at lottery headquarters in Clive, both he and his wife were starting to relax. He said he plans to save and invest his winnings. The $500,000 cash game is a $50 scratch game that features prizes ranging from $50 up to $500,000. Players try to match numbers in the playing area on tickets in the game to win a prize. The game has overall odds of winning of 1 in 3.09. You can learn more at ialottery.com. 
Our next story from The Messenger. Dayton man pleads guilty to voluntary manslaughter for 2016 homicide. A Dayton man claims he shot and fatally wounded a man in December 2016 because he was allegedly physically attacked by the victim. Christopher Todd Johnson, aged 50, pleaded guilty the Class C felony of voluntary manslaughter on Friday afternoon. Johnson had originally been charged with the first-degree murder, Class A felony, for the 2016 homicide of 51-year-old Donald Preston. During a plea hearing on Friday, Johnson admitted to shooting Preston twice on December 20, 2016, and claimed he was provoked. Quote, On that date, Don Preston attacked me physically. In response, I shot him once. Then he was no longer a threat to my safety. Shortly after that, I shot him again, and he died. I acted solely out of a sudden, irresistible passion, resulting from a serious provocation, unquote. Chief District Court Judge Adria Kester accepted Johnson's plea. Guilty plea, that is. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for March 22. Voluntary manslaughter is a forcible felony, meaning he cannot receive a suspended prison sentence or deferred judgment. Class C felonies carry an indeterminate sentence of up to 10 years in prison, and because of a dangerous weapon enhancement added to the charge, Johnson will have to serve a mandatory five years of that term. He will also have to pay a fine between $1,000 and $10,000 and pay $150,000 in victim restitution to Preston's next of kin. Johnson was arrested and charged with Preston's death February 2, 2023, more than six years after Preston's body was found by a farmer near Moreland on December 26, 2016. He had been a person of interest in Preston's death since 2017, but Johnson was already facing time in federal prison, so investigators decided to hold off on charging him until his federal sentence was complete. Shortly after Preston's body was found, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and the Webster County Sheriff's Office began a joint investigation into the death. An autopsy two days later concluded that Preston had died of gunshot wounds to the head and abdomen, and the death was ruled a homicide. At the scene, investigators found three unspent 40 caliber rounds and six spent 40 caliber ammunition casings. In a search warrant filed during the investigation, DCI Special Agent Scott Eli stated that Preston was last seen alive December 20, 2016, leaving a residence in Fort Dodge with Johnson in Johnson's car. Preston's last cell phone activity was around 4.30 that day, p.m. Although Preston's body was not found until December 26, there is no indication that Preston was alive after December 20th when he was with Johnson. Eli wrote in an October 2017 search warrant for Johnson's cell phone records, quote, the matched shell casings indicate that Christopher Johnson's 40 Glock was used to kill Donald Preston. Turning to the opinions, Health Center steps up again to aid Wright County residents. New Clarion office results from dedication and quick response of staff. For the second time in as many years, it looked like a Wright County community was going to be left without a local dentist. Once again, the Community Health Center of Fort Dodge has stepped into the gap, preparing to give Clarion not only a local dentist, but convenient access to primary health care 
and behavioral health care as well. The move is a tribute to the dedication of the health center's staff and the organization's ability to react quickly to a community need. And there's definitely a need in Clarion for dental care. For example, statistics amassed by the Community Health Center show that 15% of the kindergartners and ninth graders in the county school districts need dental care or urgent dental care. That compares to a 12.8% statewide average. The Community Health Center has already proven its ability to respond quickly to needs in Wright County. In March 2023, it purchased the former, former dental office of Dr. Misty Shaver in Eagle Grove after she announced that she was closing it. In July of that year, the office reopened as the Community Health Center of Eagle Grove, offering medical, dental, and behavioral health care. The community's response to it has been overwhelming, with appointment slots booked far into the future. Getting all that set up in Eagle Grove in a short period of time was a Herculean task for the health center staff. But with that accomplished, but with that accomplished the staff, as well as prepared to move when it was learned that Dr. Pamela Kelch was retiring in Clarion and preparing to close her office. The staff is now in the middle of a massive, another massive effort to get a new location set up. The result would be a full range of care for Clarion area residents. And just as importantly, those residents will have multiple ways to pay for that care, including private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and for patients who qualify, a sliding fee scale based on their ability to pay. The new Community Health Center of Clarion will stand as another example of the dedication and level of caring exhibited by every member of the Community Health Care Center team. We are lucky to have them here. Next editorial, Catholic Schools Served Area Well. There has been a Catholic school system in Fort Dodge for almost as long as this town has been in existence. There are other towns in the area the messenger serves that can make similar claims. Catholic education got underway in Fort Dodge more than 160 years ago. The first Catholic school came into being during the dark days of the U.S. Civil War. While many Iowans were serving their country in the Union Army, Corpus Christi Parish, in 1862, put the finishing touches on its first school building. It would be easy to recite the landmark events in Catholic education in Fort Dodge and Webster County and other areas of, of north-central Iowa. In more than a century and a half, there have been many. Fort Dodge and other area towns have excellent public school systems, but the Catholic schools offer a special blend of ex educational excellence and religious instruction. They provide an alternative approach to education that many in our communities prize highly. For many centuries in Europe and later the Americas, churches played a central role in educating young people. Catholic schools preserve that important tradition in a much more secular era. In doing so, they enrich the diversity of educational opportunities available. Catholic schools deserve praise for the excellence they bring to the educational marketplace. Here and throughout our state, Catholic schools are valued parts of the community. And that was an editorial from The Messenger. And turning to our obituaries, Sharon K. Long. A funeral will be Wednesday, January 31st at 11 a.m. at the Faith United Methodist Church in Humboldt. Visitation, 4 to 7 on Tuesday at the Mason Lindhart. 
burial will take place at the Indian Mound Cemetery. Betty Kelleher, age 98, of Fort Dodge, passed away Thursday, January 25th at the Marion Home. Massive Christian Burial, Thursday, February 1, 10.30 a.m. at the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. Burial will follow at the Corpus Christi Cemetery. Visitation, Wednesday, January 31st, from 4 to 7 at the Lauferswiler Funeral Home with a rosary with the Catholic Daughters of America at 3.45 p.m. Arthur H. Roberts, age 88, of Fort Dodge, passed away Friday, January 26th, at home with his family by his side. Visitation and celebration of life will be held Friday, February 2nd, 4 to 7 p.m., with a going-home prayer service at 7 p.m. at the Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Military rites will be conducted by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Army Honor Guard, 4 p.m. at the funeral home. Albert Habhab, Judge Albert Habhab, age 98, of Fort Dodge, died Saturday, January 27, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. Arrangements have been entrusted to the Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Carrie Lizer, that's L-I-E-S-E-R, age 67, Passed away Sunday, January 28, at her home. Services are being handled by the Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Mary Ann Winninger, um, age 69, passed away Friday, January 26, at the Crestview Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Webster City. Funeral services will be Tuesday, January 30, 10.30 a.m., at Holy Trinity Church, with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating. Burial will follow at the St. Joseph's Cemetery in Barnum. Visitation will take place Monday, that's today, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Lauferswiler Funeral Home. Donna Evans, age 93, passed away January 23rd. Funeral services, Saturday, February 3rd, at the Ewing Funeral Home in Clarion with a visitation to take place one hour prior to the services. And that's all the time we have to cover the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Monday, January 29, 2024. You've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for people with print disabilities. Uh, you can catch this and many other of our local programs on our website as a podcast. And our website is iowaradioreading.org. I've been your reader, Mary Francis. Have a great day. <music>